and welcome to the Narrow Road Podcast, a place to share the journey of walking with God on the narrow road that leads to life. I hope that you find rest and encouragement here, but above all, the awareness that you're not alone on the way. Hello, hello everyone, and welcome back to the Narrow Road Podcast. I'm your host, Rachel Bowyer, and it's my pleasure to be back with you for another episode. Today we are continuing our study of the book of Galatians, and we're in the third chapter today. We're going to get the middle portion of the third chapter, probably another 10 verses or so. We read nine verses yesterday, we're going to get about 10 verses in today, and then tomorrow we'll probably finish up chapter three. The reason why I'm breaking it up is to keep the episodes a little bit shorter, um, but also because there's so much in these chapters. Galatians is actually a very short book, but the chapters have a lot in them, as you've probably noticed if you've been following along in the series. So yeah, we just kind of got to break it up a little bit at a time. To be fair, these are letters that were written as letters. They were never written with chapters um, broken up within them. So It's kind of a moot point anyways, how we study it, because the chapters were created many, many years after the letters were written to just give us an easier way to break it up and study it. But so we can kind of do the same with a podcast, I guess. So, yeah, yesterday we talked through um, quite quite a lot. I mean, for nine verses, there was a lot to study. You know, he started out talking about how foolish the Galatians were for getting bewitched by getting pulled into this false gospel of having to observe all these Jewish customs in order to be true Christians. Um, And he basically, the Apostle Paul, the author of this book, uh, basically kind of goes straight in and basically says like, you know, what are you doing observing the law? Because did the law change your life? Or did the Holy Spirit change your life? Because if the law changed your life, then carry on. But because you didn't actually observe any of the law, and you only have had your life changed by Holy Spirit, then we'd probably be safe to assume that the law doesn't add anything to you. Observing customs and religious rituals and so on and so forth is not going to save your soul or change your life. The reason why you went from death to life and into the joy and the freedom that you live in now as Gentile Christians is because of the Holy Spirit. And so coming in now and adding on to the Holy Spirit all of these customs and weird rules that other people are imposing on you to add to your faith or to prove or validate your salvation is an offense to what Jesus did. It's an offense to the Holy Spirit. It's an offense to your your conversion, your salvation. And let's just stop playing games, pretty much. And so now, what you're going to find in the next, today's podcast and tomorrow's podcast, he's going to get into sort of the nitty gritty of where did the law come from? Why did it even exist? Again, because he's continuing to build this like powerful theological seminary level argument against its value now, why it isn't necessary why it may have been necessary in the past, but why it is no longer necessary. And he's kind of taken the long way around to really give them this deep, deep, intelligent understanding of it 
so that they can see it and value it for what it is and what it was, but also see their freedom from it. So a little bit heady, this this episode and the next episode might be a little bit heady, but I hope that there's a lot of value extracted from it. So let's go ahead and uh, read the next few verses of Galatians chapter 3. All right, so we're kind of cutting right into the middle of a sort of a concentric idea that he's flowing through at the moment. The last sentence that we left off would have been, So then those who are people of faith, whether Jew or Gentile, are blessed and favored by God and declared free of the guilt of sin and its penalty and placed in right standing with him along with Abraham the believer. So if you recall, he was talking about how Anyone who is serving the Messiah, who is following Jesus, is the seed of Abraham. And so he was trying to dismantle this idea that the only people who could really be saved are the only true Christians, the only true followers of the Messiah, had to be blood-related to Abraham. He's saying that, no, 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 the seed of Abraham are those who follow the Messiah that are carriers of the promise that was given to Abraham. So that's kind of where we ended yesterday's um, study. So following along from that idea now in Galatians chapter 3 verse 10, he carries on by saying this, For all who depend on the law, seeking justification and salvation by obedience to the law and the observance of which rituals are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law so as to practice them. Now it is clear that no one is justified, that is, no one is declared free of the guilt of sin and its penalty and placed in right standing before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith, but the law does not rest on or require faith. It has nothing to do with faith. But instead, the law says, he who practices this shall live by these laws instead of faith. Christ purchased our freedom and redeemed us from the curse of the law and its condemnation by becoming a curse for us. For it is written that cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might also come to the Gentiles, so that we would all receive the realization of the promise of the Holy Spirit through faith. Brothers and sisters, I speak in terms of human relations. Even though a last will and testament is just a human covenant, yet with it has been signed, yet when it has been signed and made legally binding, no one sets it aside or adds to it. Now the promises and the covenants were decreed to Abraham and to his seed. God does not say, and to seeds, as if to many persons, but as to one, and to your seed, who is none other than Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came into existence 430 years later, after the covenant concerning the coming Messiah, does not and cannot invalidate the covenant previously established by God, so as to abolish the promise. For if the inheritance of what was promised is based on observing the law, as these false teachers claim, it is no longer based on a promise. However, God granted it to Abraham as a gift by virtue of his promise. 
All right, so I know that that's worded a little bit crazy. It's it's a little bit heady sounding, but let's let's just take a breath and let's look at this kind of line by line. So <clears throat> he's going into our understanding of where the law comes from and what the law actually says, right? Remember, Paul is a Pharisee of Pharisee. He was a man who studied the law, who lived by the law, an extremely religious, holy, zealoted type person for all of his life until he had that Damascus Road experience where God knocked him off his horse, blinded him, and said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? As he was zealously persecuting Christians in the name of, of defending the law and the purity of the Judy, uh, of the Jewish state. He saw Christians as corrupting and polluting and following false teachers and heresy and, you know, all of this. And he zealously was trying to kill or imprison anyone who followed Jesus after Jesus's death. And God knocked him off his horse on his travels blinded him and said, why are you persecuting me? Let him into this powerful encounter that was so transformative. He was now one of the most and would become the most prolific apostle for the Christian faith. So this man knows the law, okay? And he's saying, he's giving sort of a history lesson of what it is, why it's important, and also why it isn't, given his expertise in this area. He says, all who depend on the law are under a curse because it is actually written into the law that says cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law so as to practice them. So he's saying everybody who who, who depends on this law is cursed because it literally says it. It says that you're cursed if you do not abide by all things. And of course, as we know, the law had so many laws that no one could live by the whole law. No one could, which means if you are serving that law, if you're living from the law, you're living under a curse. You're cursed because you're always going to fail. You're always going to fail. And he says, so it's clear that no one is justified before God by the law. Not only because it says you can't because you're cursed by living from it in the first place, but because God says that the righteous shall live by faith. He doesn't say the righteous shall live by this law. He says the righteous will live by faith. But the law doesn't rest on or require faith. It says he who practices this shall live by this. Instead of faith. That's what it's saying. The law doesn't require you to live by faith in any way, shape, or form. It says, you who practice this law shall live by this law. That's it. Christ purchased our freedom and redeemed us from the curse of the law and its condemnation by becoming a curse for us. That's so powerful. He became the curse for us. He says, why? How did he become a curse? For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Or alternatively, cursed is everyone who is crucified on a cross. In order that in Christ the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would all receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So again, he's driving back home to the Galatians. 
Christ died to free you from the very law that you are now bringing into your faith. And he, he died so that you would have access to the Spirit through faith. The very things that the law keeps you separated from. The law doesn't draw you closer to the Spirit. And the law doesn't require faith or encourage faith. It doesn't ask for it. It doesn't encourage it. It doesn't want you to live by faith. It wants you to live addicted to the law. And so he's going back to that core argument. Did you have your lives changed by the law or by the Holy Spirit? Because if it was the Holy Spirit, then you're walking in the promise that Jesus died to give. But if you got transformed because of the law, then, you know, there was no point in Jesus having died, eh? He says, brothers and sisters, I speak in terms of human relations. So he's like, let me, let me, let me look at it from a different vantage point here. Even though a last will and testament is just a human covenant, but when it's been signed and made legally binding, no one sets it aside and no one adds to it. Now the promises in the covenants that were decreed to Abraham and his seed or his generations to come from him, these covenants, these promises given by God, he gives to us. In a way that can't be taken away from us. He says this is what I mean. The law which came into existence 430 years later. After the promise was given to Abraham. Does not and cannot invalidate the covenant previously established by God. So as to abolish the promise. For if the inheritance is based on observing the law. As these false teachers claim. It is no longer based on a promise. But God granted it to Abraham, the covenant to Abraham, as a gift by virtue of his promise. So he's saying, <clears throat> he's saying the law came so many years, 430 years after God gave the promise that your descendants shall be like the, like the stars in the sky, right? And that they will be a blessing to all the nations in them. Uh, all the nations shall be blessed. He gave this massive covenant, this massive promise to Abraham, who's the father of faith. He was, he was deemed righteous in the eyes of God. He gave this massive promise. 430 years later, they create the law. And the law becomes a curse on man because no one can live up to it. And he's saying, the law came in, but it does not invalidate the original promise. And the original promise was that through the seed of Abraham, a Messiah would come. And through him, we would walk in the promise of the Father, which is the releasing of the Holy Spirit. That we're all living by and we're all governed by so that we don't need the laws of man we have a greater law written in our hearts through the Holy Spirit poured out upon all of us by the crucifixion of the Messiah. And he said that promise that was foretold and prophesied and covenanted between Abraham and God 400 years before the law ever existed trumps anything that the law can ever come up with. Therefore, we are living in that original promise given to Abraham right now. And if you bring the law into this now, you're, you're, you're thwarting it. You're bringing something in 
that doesn't have the historical weight behind it that the promise does. And it doesn't add anything to what you're walking in with God. If anything, it takes away from it and it disrespects it. I hope my (laughs) very human uh, interpretation of what is being said here is making it a little bit clearer because I, I know how hard it is to sometimes read that and really perceive what's being said. You know, he's trying, he's again, he's building that case for why it's ridiculous to incorporate any aspects of the law into your faith now. And he's saying this because he knows full well the slippery slope that the law is. You give it an inch and it'll take a mile. You let just one little pinky toe in the door and you're getting a whole army of men. And he knows that. But he's got to, in his mind, he's got to really drive home theologically every reason against uh, partnering with any aspect of the law. So let's really quickly, I'm not going to read the whole commentary this time because I think in many ways it kind of like redundantly re-explains itself. Um, But I'm going to just pick some high points from the commentary to see if it adds anything to um, these verses that we've just read together. So let's take a quick look. All right, so the first thing I want to point out here that the commentary says is how Paul talks about the law being a curse on man and how it's very he specifically chose that as something he wanted to point out here and it says in the commentary that the christians from a jewish background who believed gentiles should still live under the law of moses thought that it was a path to blessing they thought the law was a path to blessing but paul boldly declared that instead of blessing Living under the works of the law put them under a curse. It isn't hard to see how these Christians believed that living under law brought blessing. They could read in the Old Testament many passages that supported this thinking. Psalm 119 says, Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. We must understand how the law can bring blessing. First, we see that the word law is used in two senses in the Bible. Sometimes it means the law of Moses with all its commands, which a man must obey to be approved by God. Sometimes it means God's word in a very general sense. Many times when the Old Testament speaks of the law, it speaks of it in the general sense of God's word to us. When Psalm 119 says, Oh, how I love your law, it is my meditation all the day, the psalmist meant more than just the law of Moses. He meant all of God's word. Seeing this, we understand how the Bible is filled with praise for the law. Secondly, we are blessed when we keep the law because we're living according to the instruction manual for life. There is an inherent built-in blessing in living the way God says we should live in fulfilling the manufacturer's recommendation. But when, when Paul said that as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, he didn't mean that the law was bad or the word of God is wrong. He simply meant that God never intended the law to be the way we find our approval before him. He knew we could never keep the law. And so God instituted the system of atoning sacrifice along with the law, meaning, you know, how they had to keep the law, but then they also had to 
come bring an animal, the best animal they had on their land for a sacrifice once per year so it would cover the sins of their family. That's further evidence that the law, no one was living up to the law. So to cover that, they had an animal sacrifice every year to sort of cover all the sin they did have because they were never living up to the law. That was a standard practice in Judaism. And the entire sacrificial system looked forward to what Jesus would accomplish on the cross for us. Jesus became the ultimate, not animal sacrifice, but the ultimate sacrifice of all, to the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Paul was quoting here. To prove his point scripturally, Paul quoted from Deuteronomy 27. The Old Testament itself shows us that if we do not keep all things in the law and actually do them, then we are under a curse. The important words are all and do. For God to approve of you on the basis of the law, you first have to do it. Not simply know it, not simply love it, not simply teach it, not simply want it. You must do it. Secondly, you have to do it all, not some, not just when you're over 18 or over 40, not just more good than bad. Deuteronomy 27:26 specifically says that to be justified by the law, you must do it and do it in all things. All means a lot. It means that while some sins are worse than others are, there are no small sins before such a great God. Jewish keepers of the law would overlook small transgressions, but Paul would not. Paul's point is heavy. It weighs us down with a curse. If you are under the works of the law, the only way you can stand approved and blessed before God by the law is to do it and to do it all. And if you don't, you're cursed. Cursed is a word that sounds strange in our ears, but in the Bible, the idea of being cursed is important and frightening because it means being cursed by God, not only cursed by our own bad choices, not only cursed by this wicked world, not only cursed by the devil, but especially cursed by God. He is the one person you never want to be cursed by. Then he goes on to talk about how the just shall live by faith, right? That that's the counter to the point is it's the Bible clearly says that if you don't complete the law perfectly, consistently your whole life, then you're cursed. And that was never God's intention for humanity. And he says the just shall live by faith and the law does not encourage faith in any way, shape or form. But what does it mean to live by faith? The brief statement from the prophet Habakkuk is one of the most important and most quoted Old Testament statements in the New Testament. Paul used it here to show that the just live by faith, not by the law. Being under the law isn't the way to be found just before God. Only living by faith is. Every word in Habakkuk 2.4 is important, and God quotes it three times in the New Testament just to bring out the fullness of the meaning. But then he goes on to say, the law is not of faith. Some might come back to Paul and say, look, I'll do the best I can under the law and let faith cover the rest. God will look at my performance, my effort, and my good intentions and credit to me as righteousness. The important thing is that I'm really trying. Paul proved from the Old Testament itself that this simply isn't good enough. No, the paths of approval by the law and faith don't run together because the law is not faith. 
It's very easy to comfort ourselves with our good intentions. We all mean very well, but if we want to find our place before God by our works under the law, good intentions are never enough. A good effort isn't enough. Only actual performance will do. But then he goes on to the good news that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law because we didn't actually do it and do it all. The law put us under a curse. But now Jesus has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Redeemed has the idea of buying back or purchasing out of. It isn't just rescuing. It is paying a price to rescue. Jesus bought us out from under the curse of the law. Simply put, in Jesus, we aren't cursed anymore. Galatians chapter 3 left us all under a curse, but we are not cursed anymore because Jesus bought us out from the curse. Hmm. He goes on by saying that Jesus became a curse for us. This explains how Jesus paid the price to rescue us. Jesus became a curse on our behalf. He stood in our place and took the curse that we deserved. It stops us in our tracks to understand that the price he paid to buy us out from under the curse of the law was the price of himself. It didn't just cost Jesus something, even something great. It cost Jesus himself. We know that men cursed Jesus as he hung on the cross, but that compares nothing to how he was cursed by God the Father. He made himself the target of the curse and set those who believe outside the target. Paul does not say that Christ was made a curse for himself. The accent is on the two words, for us. Christ is personally innocent. Personally, he did not deserve to be hanged for any crime of his own doing. But because Christ took the place of others who were sinners, he was hanged like any other transgressor. He went on and said, For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. When did Jesus pay the price? The principle of Deuteronomy 21-23 shows that Jesus received this curse upon himself as he hung on the cross, fulfilling the Deuteronomy 21-23 promise of a curse to all who are not only executed, but have their bodies publicly exposed to shame. This passage did not refer to crucifixion, which the Jews did not practice, but to hanging on a tree or wooden post of the corpse of a criminal who had been executed. But in the New Testament times, a cross was often called a tree, and there is no doubting that this is what Paul has in mind here. In the thinking of ancient Israel, there was something worse than being put to death. Worse than that was to be put to death and to have your corpse left in the open, exposed to shame, humiliation, and scavenging animals and birds. When it says hangs on a tree, it does not have the idea of being executed by strangulation, but of having the corpse mounted on a tree or other prominent place to expose the executed one to the elements of supreme disgrace. However, if anyone was executed and deemed worthy of such disgrace, the humiliation to his memory and his family must not be excessive. Deuteronomy 21.23 also says his body shall not remain overnight on the tree when it is prophesying the Messiah's death. This was a way of tempering even the most severe judgment with mercy. Significantly, Jesus fulfilled this also, being taken down from the cross before night had fully come. Jesus received this curse, which we deserved, and he did not, so that we could receive the blessing of Abraham, which he deserved, and we did not. It would be enough if Jesus simply took away the curse we deserved, but he did far more than that. He 
he also gave a blessing that we didn't deserve. The blessing of Abraham. It's what Paul already described in Galatians 3, verse 8 and 9. The blessing of being justified before God by faith instead of by works. Then he goes on in the last few verses that we read and he says, he starts talking about the covenant, right? He starts speaking kind of from a different angle, talking about how nobody annuls or adds to a covenant. Um, uh, it says here in the commentary that Paul first establishes the principle that even with a covenant among men, the covenant stands firm once it is made. No one annuls it and no one adds to it. Paul's point isn't really about covenants among men, but to say how much more certain is a covenant that God makes. God promised Abraham that in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Paul observes that the singular for seed is used, not the plural. The point is clear. God is referring to one specific descendant of Abraham, not all of his descendants in general. If the inheritance offered to Abraham was on the basis of law, it might not be permanent because it would depend on at least in part, on Abraham's keeping of the law. But since the inheritance was offered on the basis of promise, God's promise, it stands sure. God gave it to Abraham by promise, is what was quoted. The word gave here is the ancient Greek word kekaristai. <laughs> kekaristai? I don't know. Which is based on the Greek word charis, or grace. God's giving to Abraham was the free giving of grace. The word is also in the perfect tense, showing that the gift is permanent. Judaizers might quote Moses, Paul will quote Abraham, but let them quote law, he will quote promise. If they appeal to the centuries of tradition and the proud history of the law of Moses, he will appeal to the grander covenant with Abraham, older by centuries still. Well, that was the final quote in there by a theologian named Cole. Uh, I don't understand that quote. I'm too tired to try to. Um, but anyway, <laughs> that's where we're going to end today. Um, we've got the last bit of Galatians 3 to study tomorrow. And then we're going to get into the last few chapters of Galatians, where we're going to really see him uh, take take things to the next level in terms of what freedom we have in Christ. So I hope you'll return for the next episode. Today and tomorrow's are a little bit heady because he's saying a lot of like heady things that are deeply, deeply profound, deeply, deeply freeing, but sometimes written in a way that it's just so much coming at you that like just one verse could uh, could really hit you pretty hard. I think understanding the context, though, of who he's writing to, what he's saying is so, so, so important so that we don't misapply it. But at the same time, searching this passage for how can we apply that to our life, that's that's the key thing for each of us, right? That's the key thing to you as a listener, to me as a listener, is, okay, he's calling out the risk of falling into the law the needlessness of it. There is value in the law. There was value. There is value in the law. But we don't need it now because Jesus fulfilled the law and gave us a new covenant entirely. So what is there anything in our life that looks like us bringing the law into our life, bringing the rules, the rituals, the proving, right? The earning 
of God's favor, the earning of God's love, the workspace mentality of I can, I can work harder, I can prove myself more diligently, I can punish myself more thoroughly when I mess up. Where is that in our lives? Because that's what he's trying to stop us from uh, leaning on or believing in. Because whether we realize it or not, we're adding to our faith. We're saying, Jesus, what you did wasn't enough. Yes, you set me free, but I'll take it from here. I will free myself the rest of the way, or I will punish myself into holiness, you know? It's it's just believing he did part of the process of sanctification, not all of it in your life. And you don't see that that's what you're doing, but that's what you're doing when you are holding yourself to a standard that's unrealistic or adding to... Um, the work of the gospel, the work of grace in your life by adding all sorts of rules upon yourself and potentially others. Um, And so that's really what Galatians is trying to help us see a bit more clearly. And I hope that as we're studying this together, you're able to sort of look at your own life and see where have you pulled yourself into a prison that you didn't need to, that you don't need to be in. And how do you get out? How do you let go of the rules and regulations that you have hindered yourself with? Or perhaps others have imposed on you that Jesus hasn't imposed. Yeah. Anyway, food for thought, and ultimately, a huge part of why we're studying this book. Um, So I thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Narrow Road Podcast, and I hope that you'll join me tomorrow for another episode as we continue 365 days of podcasting. So I'll see you back here then. Thanks so much and bye-bye.